TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to HBS After Hours. I'm Youngmi Moon, and I'm here with my buddies... Felix Oberholzer G and Mahir Desai. Hi, guys. Hey, hey young me. Um, this is exciting. This is our premiere episode. Ooh, we're ready. <laughs> Did you bring your best game? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, the premise of this podcast is um, you know, we're trying to do something that sits right at that intersection between business and society. And the idea is that uh, every week, each one of us will bring in a topic. Um, that is weighing on us, and we'll just talk about it. So today, I want to talk about the NRA. I will talk about Facebook. Okay. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about porn. Excuse porn? me? Porn, indeed. Well, <laughs> the I thought, first episode, well, we'll talk about porn? Well, really? you know, when, when Young Me suggested After Hours... Oh I, thought, I thought I thought I thought I had to push yeah. the envelope a little bit. So we're going to try to push the boundaries and talk a little bit about porn, but seriously about porn and what its effects are. Okay, so how's that for promotion? We're going to do the NRA. We're going to do Facebook. Talk about pornography. Um, we're also going to do some recommendations and, and talk we'll do about the Oscars. Oscars, of course. Does All this right? actually combine up to sex, drugs, and violence? I'm <laughs> 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 Sorry. So I think I got the sex. Okay. I think you got the violence. I've got the violence. If you can work in drugs, that would be good, Felix. I'll try my best. Okay. All right. Okay, guys, I'm going to get us started. I, I, I want to talk about the NRA. Obviously, this topic, uh, the catalyst for this was the Parkland shooting. You know, typically when there is, I mean, I hate to say the word typically, but when, when we have a mass shooting, that uh, these things sort of follow a, a, an arc, that we've very predictable arc where we are, you know, grief stricken and then we're outraged and then the whole topic sort of subsides. And I want to believe that this time uh, feels a little bit different. And there are three things about the, the post shooting that feels just a little different. One is the extent to which students have uh, really mm-hmm. tried to seize the narrative yeah. and become real agents in mm-hmm. how the conversation unfolds. Uh, the second is you you do see some of our political representatives um, bending a little bit mm-hmm. in how they talk about their willingness to even consider 
some gun control regulation, which I think you haven't seen before. And third, the amount of corporate activity you're seeing with corporations beginning to distance themselves from the NRA. So I guess the question that I would open up with is whether it's um, overly optimistic to think that this might be a true tipping point Mm -hmm. for how we think about gun control. Look, I certainly hope we are. I think there's reason to be cautious about that because, you know, often we've said this time is different. But I think you're right. This time is different for all those reasons. Um, and in particular, you know, we have a president who changes his mind every day and he's, we don't actually know what he's going to say. And so today, for example, he said these really remarkable things, like he's willing to do things that Republicans have never been willing to do. And I think there's like a Nixon goes to China thing going on, right? Which is if anybody can get it done, maybe he can mm-hmm. because his base believes in him so much. So I think it is actually different. I'm a little less sure. Uh, and part of my not being overly optimistic is just think back to how we felt about the shooting in Las Vegas. It was so big. It seemed that the remedy that was on the horizon and that at the beginning, everybody seemed to agree, oh, maybe a good idea not to allow people to transform their weapons into even more powerful weapons. It seemed very natural. And today, there's no, there's not even a conversation about revisiting that issue that seemed the low hanging fruit after the Las Vegas shooting. And so, in the, mo- it's exactly what you said at the beginning. In the moment, it always seems like this time, it's going to be different. If if you think of democracy as a system that is supposed to bring about policies that are close to what people want, yep. here we have this really big puzzling observation that. Yep. Most people want restrictions on firearms, and we don't seem to be able to get them. I'm, I'm kind of curious if you think, if the students came to you uh, and they said, you know, you're really good at marketing, like you're really good at strategy, what should we be doing to ensure that this time is different? Like, I mean, are there principles that, they're not, that we're not using? You know, one attitude is, well, they're just too powerful and NRAs are going to stop us. What would you do to make this time different? So I think it's it's the persistence with which you are able to sustain passion around the issue. To me, that is, and that's something I think the NRA has done yeah. so effectively. It's I, I think there's a little bit of a myth around why the NRA is so effective. And, and, and the myth involves, well, they just give a lot of money directly right. to, to our politicians. When, in fact, if you look at what they actually end up giving to our politicians, it pales in comparison. It's almost nothing. It's almost nothing. What they are able to do is mobilize a small, and by small, I mean, you know, it's a few million people, and they're able to activate them. And, you know, this is a country that we are just stunningly reluctant to vote, (laughs) to just go to the polls. And so when you have an organization that is able to activate people and get and, and one issue voters and get them to move to the polls uh, as a result of you know a grade that the NRA gives a politician. I think that's that's highly effective. You know, on the other hand, for for the the vast majority of people on the other side of this issue, there are just a lot of things that we care about, not just this one yeah. thing, and so. Our ability to sustain any kind of impassioned outrage about this is, I mean, that's, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. 
you know, did any of you guys see the uh, CNN town hall uh, about a week? Or I saw chunks of it, did yeah. Did you see chunks of it? What was amazing to me about that town hall was it was the first time I had seen an event where the audience had so much power. Even through the television screen, you could feel the pressure that the audience was putting on the people on that stage. And it's that sort of collective energy. You could almost feel Rubio being sort of bullied by the audience into saying some things that he never (laughs) planned. I'd say that was my impression. I don't don't know if you guys had the same impression. What would it take for us to bottle that, to bottle that and to be able to unleash that at strategic moments? I think that's what it's going to take. I think one of the things that is great about what is happening right now is speed. Yes. Uh, because bottling the passion is so difficult. Yes. One of the things yes. that makes me really optimistic about Florida, this is happening now. Yes. And yes. we're not going to wait and it's not going to be next month. Yes. And it's not going right. to be after an election. Right. It's It happens now. And I think what really helps there is if I can tap into an issue that people feel passionate about. I think, as you pointed out, the NRA has done a beautiful job making guns something that is very special to America and Americans and American values. This is my interpretation why we were able to move so quickly uh, on the gay rights front, because we, we connected gay rights to marriage. And we have very special feelings about marriage. And so not giving access to something that we hold as dear as marriage didn't seem right to most people. And I think that's what the other side, the opposing side, lacks. We have, other than the tragedy in the moment, we don't have a big issue that we connected to. And as a result, people are critical of guns and the role of guns in American society. For them, it's always going to be issue number 21, and issue number 21 doesn't decide elections. I think the point that you made about speed, there's a thing called momentum now, and you really saw that happen with gay marriage. To the point, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, and then something happened, 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 and then boom, you know? And so... If I were a strategist, sort of coaching the never again, if I had yeah, all, you exactly. know, all, you know yes. uh-huh. one of the things that I would be trying to encourage them to think about is what's the thing that happens today? What's the thing that happens tomorrow? So, for example, there was a, there's just been a ton of corporate activity yeah. around this issue over the last... And can we make sure that that continues? And then what's the next thing that's going to happen? And what's the next thing? And and making sure that we create almost a crescendo-like feeling around this. I think on that, I think on speed and on momentum, the most powerful thing that I saw was the walkouts. Because what can these kids yeah. really do, right? Yeah. So their voice is going to be heard now, but in a month it may be gone. Yeah. But I mean, I think if you're really serious about this, you stage you stage walkouts. Yeah, yeah. And you, you create a movement of walkouts because that that's going to get CNN. I mean, that's going to get the coverage. You know, without that, it's going to be really hard. There's something so compelling about seeing youth in action. I mean, I know that we love to make fun of millennials and we love to make fun of post-millennials, but I'm, I'm in love with this generation for many reasons. But I think there's just something so deeply, deeply compelling about their inflated sense of empowerment mm-hmm. when channeled in the right, in the right direction, mm-hmm. I think. It also creates a bunch of conflict, too, because they're so young. So right before I came here tonight, 
I was talking to my son, who is a senior in high school, about those kids at Parkland and the ones that are really leading the charge. And I said, what do you think of those kids? He said a few things. One, he thought they were awesome. He said he hoped that if something like that ever happened at his school, that his school would react the same way. And he felt pretty confident that his school would, yeah. you know. But his his third reaction was that there are moments when he winces. And I said, give me an example. And he said, oh, I mean, they were on Ellen, Mom. And they were kind of <laughs> giggling and, you know. And he said, I, I had to wince. And he goes, I get it. I get it. I mean, they're getting deluged. It's, yeah. I think that's the complication. They're not unlike us. They're complicated human beings, and they're experiencing a lot of different emotions right now. But that means it's risky. I mean, it sounds like going on Ellen to you or to him is risky. Like there's a risk of overexposure or overplaying your hand. Yes, I think that's right. But on the other hand, it's hard. Number one, it's hard to do this elegantly. Yeah. And number two, I don't believe you have to do it perfectly to still be effective. There are a lot of voices in there, and there's yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of noise. Um, but I think as long as directionally— the momentum continues to build, yeah. it does give me a little bit of optimism. And to me, one of the most sort of fascinating little threads of this particular story is to watch the stock market. So if you look at the stock the stock prices of the big three gun manufacturers, historically, they've always followed a pattern. And whenever there's been a mass shooting, even after Trump, so after Orlando, after Las Vegas, uh, you know, uh, their stock goes up. Every, I mean, with such reliability because there's, you know, for all of the obvious reasons. In this case, it hasn't. Yeah. Remington went out, you know, has declared bankruptcy last yeah. week. And and the other, all the stocks are flat to slightly down. And, you know, I think the stock market is like a really unreliable barometer of corporate performance, <laughs> but a much more <laughs> reliable barometer of sort of the emotional tenor of something. And it makes me, everyone's skittish. <clears throat> We've all gotten really skittish now. Yeah. I love that you're using an event study to think about this problem because it's like exactly <laughs> what we do in finance. Let me give you my finance version of this. Okay. And you can, you can tell me I'm crazy. So here's a couple of facts. The market capitalization of Sturm Ruger and American Outdoors, which mm -hmm. is Smith & Wesson, yep. they combine to be around $1 billion, $1.2 billion. The Remington bonds are trading at 20 cents on the dollar. There's about a billion dollars of bonds outstanding. Here's the basic calculation. You can pay a control premium to all the shareholders of 15%. You can take out the Remington bonds. For $2 billion, you can control all the capacity. You can control the big three, which is, by the way, 40 to 50% of capacity. So, like, I think to myself, look, I, I'm not sitting on $2 billion, but there are people who are sitting on $2 billion. And you could control... This is fascinating. You could control all three companies for $2 billion. And just as a metric, there's like $400 billion of charitable contributions every year. So this is like a drop in the bucket. And again, like I don't have $2 billion. So I have bought... But you know people who do. Well, and, we, and when for sure, you know, we collectively do, right? Yes, that's absolutely So you can right. go on to like interactive brokers and but you can buy the Remington bonds. Like I, So this is my story, which is... I'll, I wrote a little piece on this that I'll send to you, which is... Uh, it's What did I call it? a socially responsible hostile takeover. So let's do a socially responsible hostile takeover and let's just control the capacity. What about what about the European supply of of yeah. it's actually in the America so the, the big 3 do our 50 or 60. You're right. 
this becomes a, this is a windfall to the Europeans. Is Absolutely would be right. the best day Absolutely. ever for them. <laughs> Absolutely right. And we, so, can you tell me before you spend the two billion dollars, and I'll invest in the European <laughs> stock? Well, you're right. So there's Beretta, and there's a couple yeah. of other manufacturers. Yes. It's a total windfall to them. And by the way, this does nothing for the existing stock of mm -hmm. weapons out That's there. Right. Yeah, of course, it doesn't yeah. help with that problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, having said that, once you control that capacity, it's hard to build that capacity back up. I don't know, would you as a European manufacturer invest in new capacity if you thought the the tide had kind of moved against guns? Maybe, I don't know. You're right. It's a windfall to European manufacturers. You're totally right. I guess I'm hoping that, man, if you're running Beretta, you're going to say to yourself, they're coming yeah. down pretty hard and they're doing pretty crazy things. I'm not going to... I'm not going to jack yeah. up capacity. And also, yeah. it would be a huge order of magnitude capacity for them. Yeah. Because these guys are so big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my finance. That's my finance take on it. Okay, so Felix, you're up. What should we talk about next? Let's talk about Facebook. So as you know, we often ask the students at Harvard Business School to think about what it's like to be in the role of a case protagonist, of an executive who runs an organization. So I'll ask you this, uh, for the next couple of minutes, you get to be Mark Zuckerberg. You just read the report, the government's report about how exactly the Russian government and Russian intermediaries try to influence the US election. What do you do? What do you say to people working for Facebook? Well, God, that's a great question. I think the first thing you say, you have to adopt an attitude of, I'm not going to fight this, I'm going to acknowledge it. And the first thing is acknowledgement. We played a role. It was an unwitting role, and we're going to cooperate. I think, in fact, what he did at the right at the time of the election was the opposite of that. Yes. And I think mm -hmm. you have to acknowledge and you have to be cooperative. The deeper thing is, what are the steps you take to kind of actually address this problem? And that is what I don't know fully, right? Because in here, wait, wait, wait. What if he doesn't believe that Facebook had a significant role? At least with respect to the Russian influence, which is a different question did, than did Facebook have an influence on the election? I think that's a right. different question, right? And so, I but, think but, on, on that question, yeah. I think there's general agreement. It didn't swing the election. Uh, it was too little money, too little influence. I think most people would say with, with the Russian thing, the Russian yeah, thing would not have yeah. would not have changed it's the a election drop outcome. Drop in the ocean. Okay, so, so let's yes. assume that's what you believe. Yeah. yeah. So would you still? Oh, I think if you fight it, you're dead. I think if you fight it, you're dead. I mean, you look like, A, vaguely unpatriotic. Um, you look, B, disconnected from reality. And you look like a money-grubby guy who's like wants to defend his business model at all costs. Yeah. I think that's a very tough way to go. What do you think? Felix? Does it matter at all that parts of the report that I found so interesting is just how careful the interventions happened? Yeah. You know, it's not just that you open an account possibly yeah. from an IP address that we can trace back to Russia. You had stolen identities, you had bank information that came from somewhere else. So if you just think, what would it take for Facebook to actually detect? Suppose this happens tomorrow. What would it take for them to know this is an attempt of foreign agents to influence a U.S. election? If I'm Mark Zuckerberg, it's inconceivable to me that there would be an expectation that I would have somehow been able to filter this content. Facebook has 6 million advertisers. They processed $12 billion worth of advertising last quarter. This was an $800,000 advertising campaign. This was, okay. I think, I think you're letting them off the hook. 
you're letting them off too easily. I mean, Facebook has this position, which is, oh, we're just a platform, right? And you can't accuse us, we're not a publisher, right? I think that's the way yeah. they think about it. That's right. Yeah. Yes. I think that's wrong. Yeah. Yes. I think that's wrong. I think they're publishers, and they should understand that. They get it both ways. They're like, I am just a platform, I can't do anything. And so, that's like, I don't think that's tenable for them any longer. So, so here, let me ask you this. So, so one common response among publishers in response to the difficulties of managing content that you don't produce yourself is to either heavily, heavily censor or completely shut down the public comment sections on their websites. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they say, we just can't do it. That is not an option that Facebook has. Shutting down the public comment section on Facebook is shutting down Facebook. Look, I think this happens in the context of a great deal of ambivalence about big tech. These companies are in the crosshairs. They're in the crosshairs in Europe on antitrust. They're in the crosshairs in the U.S. on election. They're in the crosshairs of just being too big, right? So, I, I mean, this go to tipping points. This is you know conceivably a tipping point against some of these companies which have enjoyed this incredible you know performance. So, I don't think you can't do anything. If I was running Facebook, I'd be really genuinely worried that. Just what you said, but yeah. maybe in reverse, yeah. which is actually God, they're going to the core. Yep. They cut to the core of who we are, which is highly optimized strategies for advertising, and they're pushing up against it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, the, the traditional publishers have found it enormously difficult to manage online conversation. Even the White House homepage, what you see as public comments, is highly, highly edited yeah. in labor-intensive ways. And we now get a whole suite of products where uh, there is uh, automatic editing, where you take out any sort of comment that yeah. includes particular swear words or particular words that people feel are offensive. Are you saying we're giving up on the idea of the internet as a public square? I'm giving up on the idea that these people can have their cake and eat it too and be agnostic about what's going on on their platforms. I think your publisher's point is right. They own it, right? They're owning what's the content and they're policing it. But as a result, the public square function of those common sections in newspapers no, are think, basically... So, no, 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 wait a second. Look at the New York Times. There are like thousands of comments on hot stories. The New York that, Times is one of the few papers that can afford to do this. But uh, it, go to, go Facebook to small, can afford it. Go to smaller publishers. They shut down their comments. But sections. this is what I think. I think Facebook has got to invest in this and they got to do this. They, they got to do what the New York Times has done. So, okay. So, and that's expensive and it's okay. What puzzles me about... I understand all the legal questions regarding the way the Russians try to influence electoral activity and that it's not it's not legal and they, you know, stole identities and so on and so on. So so obviously that's not something we want. Uh but if I'm thinking this is ultimately about safeguarding the quality of the information that will lead to people making electoral decisions one way or another, I'm mildly confused why we're worried about some claims by some people that are frankly no more or no less outrageous than 90% of what gains popularity on Twitter. These people are masquerading as not being Russian. That is the problem. They go to great lengths to masquerade as Americans. And that makes it highly problematic. I mean, I think, look, I think you cannot minimize this. I mean, this is a deeply worrisome thing, at least to me. Look, I mean, what's going to happen with the next, next election account outcome? Are we going to actually believe it? What happens when you stop believing election outcomes? I, don't, I, I think that's, 
I think that's massively important. Anyway, that was your puzzle. I think if you, I, I still want to hear what you think we should do. Yeah. But yeah. I think the puzzle, I mean, God, I think it's a massive deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, we can agree. I'm as, puzzled, I'm as puzzled as I was uh, okay. two I minutes ago, but that's, again. but that's fine. But I just give you an analogy so I want to understand your position. Let's just go to old media because I understand old media better than I understand new media. Um, the New York Times publishes an ad that says Hillary Clinton is terrible. This is in, t- in 2016. It turns out that's paid for by Russia. Okay. Isn't the New York Times responsible to figure that out? Who the advertiser is? Yeah. So, Our, I mean, and it, that is exactly analogous. And I think we should hold the New York Times to that. The New York Times should not take an ad against Hillary Clinton so the, paid for by Vladimir Putin. And that's the, exactly the same thing on, the, on a very tiny little scale. I think the scale is, issue is, in the, I mean, even for the New York Times. So this ad was bought by someone with an address in Baltimore. Uh, the person is an American citizen, has pays from a bank account. But so it there, wasn't. It wasn't. So oh, it wasn't. But like, how would you know as the New York Times? Here's your responsibility. analogy, I think. Okay. Imagine that the New York Times had a huge classified ad section. A huge classified ad <laughs> yeah, section. Yeah, okay. I mean, and it was... You better... Okay, good. I get your point. A hundred yeah. pages. So you get my point. Okay, yeah, so... It, we'll keep going. Yeah, so it's a huge classified I, section. Right, a huge classified ad section. And they, like, they get an ad from somebody whose address checks out, whose everything checks out, and they take the ad and they publish it. And then later it comes out that they were totally, totally spoofed. Totally. Now... That, to me, is a better analogy. I, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's slightly different in the sense that those classified ads are typically not, don't vote for Hillary Clinton. They are, I got a used car for sale. So I get that. But it, God, it feels like we have to hold them to something, right? I mean, you can't just let anybody advertise and say anything in your newspaper. Can I ask but, you a somewhat different question? So the U.S. <laughs> interferes in other countries' elections all the time. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think um, the fact that the U.S. does it, I'm not proud of that. I think it's kind of terrible. And of course, we have a terrible history with the CIA of intervening in elections around the world. And I don't condone that at all. But just because we've done it and it's something ugly that we did doesn't mean that it's okay that other people do it. I also think, you know, it's small now, but for Russia to spend $10 billion on this is a drop in the bucket for them. They can do it. And maybe it's not effective now and maybe it's $800,000 now, but it can be, you know, it can all be these little classified ads, but it can be thousands and thousands of them. So the scale can get big, and it can get big fast. So is the idea American democracy somehow depends on isolation of the electoral discourse from opinions that foreigners have? Not at all. Not at all. But it is the idea that if we have countries that have the worst interests of heart, our, our interests at heart, and are decidedly trying to subvert our elections and our democracy— and they're doing it in covert ways. Like, I think, look, if Theresa May or Emmanuel Macron wants to say something about the election, bring it on. I think if, like, Vincente Fox wants to say building the wall is stupid, bring it on. I think that's great. But this is not like that. So, so I, I was going to make the point that this distinction between what's the responsibility of the individual business and the individual business person and what's the responsibility of the regulatory framework to get this right. Right now, we're treating all of these issues as essentially corporate issues. Mark Zuckerberg has to figure it out how to deal right. with Russian influence. And is, I was going to come back to my original question. Is like, is the question the right question to ask? 
Okay, here it's your turn now. What do you want us to talk about next? Let's talk about porn. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, this is going to be tough, but let's try to think about this. And I think it's interesting and it's a really important issue for reasons that are not immediately clear. So the reason to talk about porn is twofold. One, I think it is at the kind of really frontier of thinking about what the internet is. The UK has recently started to implement rules that will ban porn. The Digital Economy Act, for example, was cited by a campaign group called Sex and Censorship to say the government will now have the power to block websites en masse without court orders. This is a first in a democracy. Although this appears to be just about protecting children from porn, it isn't. It will block any site that doesn't comply with strict UK content rules. That's from a Wired article. That's one reason. Second reason is the Me Too moment. Um, There's this terrifying article in the New York Times Magazine about how much porn young boys consume. And the, the statistics are crazy. They consume an enormous amount of porn. The real interesting part to me was two people who I really respect from totally different parts of the political spectrum suggest that we should ban porn. One of them is David Simon, who produced The Wire mm-hmm. and then did The Deuce, which is this HBO show about the porn industry. And he, I think, makes this really compelling case. And by the way, he's totally left of center, you know, you know completely not... Uh, conservative anyway. And he says, pornography has affected the way men and women look at each other, the way we address each other culturally, sexually, he says. I don't think you can even look at the misogyny that's been evident in this election cycle and what any female commentator or essayist or public speaker endured on the internet or any social media setting and not realize that pornography has changed the demeanor of men. Just the way that women are addressed for their intellectual output, the aggression that's delivered to women, I think is informed by 50 years of the culturalization of the pornographic. And the final thing I'll just say is, in Ross Douthat's column in the New York Times, he says, he's a very conservative guy. So if you want better men by any standard, there's every reason to regard ubiquitous pornography as an obstacle. And to suspect that between virtual reality and creepy forms of customization, its influence is only likely to get worse. But unlike many structural forces with which moralists on the left and right contend, porn is also just a product, something made and distributed and sold, and therefore subject to regulation and restriction if we so desire. So the question becomes, how do we think about porn? Is it just content like any other content and that we should just allow it to be free? Or is it really something that has to be controlled? Is it destructive? And is it a product that has to be regulated like nicotine or like other kinds of things? And is this a moment in the internet where things are changing? So I don't want you to share your personal experiences with porn. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but what really, do you make? I really appreciate that. But is this, I mean, I, for me, it's made me rethink um, the nature of content. And this is really maybe very dangerous. And I think if the Me Too moment's about anything, it's about power. And I think they're right. I mean, I think if, when men absorb these images, they think about women differently. They think about women yep. as things that they can control. So I'm, I, I'm finding myself in favor of banning porn, and I want you to tell me that I'm crazy. Or am I right? Here's what I don't quite understand. Pornography is still heavily stigmatized. And so the consumption of pornography is still pretty much kind of closeted behavior. And I'm wondering if, is it because of that stigmatization and that we sort of still keep it sort of over here in this corner, that the nature of the content itself is of a certain kind, right? So, and and if it were, in other words, I, I find myself being pulled in two very different directions. One, we should either ban it altogether, 
Or two, we should completely destigmatize it and we should require every adult citizen to watch one hour of porn every day. <laughs> in which case, which is an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, exactly. Because if, if every. If time consuming, uh, but. If, yes, <laughs> but if and every productivity adult decreasing. had to watch one, like was forced to watch one hour, then the product, my, my sense is that the kind of content that would be produced would change pretty dramatically to appeal to a much broader set of folks. And so then you would have, you know, kind of a distribution of content, all of which would be labeled porn, but but it would be a more appropriate distribution and a healthier distribution. And the extreme ends of the continuum would be labeled as such and would be subject to the same kind of sort of public criticism and scrutiny and all the rest. But here's the other thing that's hard to reconcile. I mean, I think I said this earlier. It's hard for me to buy into the notion that men today are worse. In, in, in other words, that there's a degradation somehow in the mores of young men today as a result of having watched a lot of pornography. I, I don't know if I buy that. I don't know that things have gotten worse. I had a similar reaction to yours reading the, reading the New York Times article. And what struck me as particularly interesting is so over here in this one corner we have a particular type of relationship between the genders highly sexualized uh, of which we fear that it has detrimental effects on young people's view of what sex is about and what's appropriate and how they should relate to the other gender and then you would think okay and then we have on the other end we will have all this content and we have all these conversations around how do you give someone pleasure? How do you, like, what's the, what are the things that you can do that are going to be experienced as particularly tender and as particularly nice? Mm. And that part of the conversation doesn't take place yeah. because all we teach is abstinence. And, and so, I I had a I didn't think of it as the solution to Required. porn being more porn, <laughs> but but in a way it is okay. So, but we, the normalization have, of yeah. of pornography that, yes. that that's really you know yeah. And then I think if I if I had to emphasize one immediate action, it's we we have to have narrative. We have to have you know even why isn't there why isn't there a teen show where the not-so-great-looking guy who's not the smartest in the group but knows how to give girls incredible orgasms, and he's everybody's hero. Why isn't there, why isn't there that show? Here, here's the point, I think. This goes back to debates in the 70s and 80s between feminists, some of whom said porn is evil, and others of whom said is, no, 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 we just need the right kind of porn, right? Like we... If there's once we are all sexually liberated, there'll be all this stuff out there, which is actually better porn. And we'll be talking about feelings. We'll be talking about pleasure. Here's the reality. It's like 40 years later. And we have a pretty liberal atmosphere. And that kind of content is not being produced. And it's not being consumed. And the reality is, I think, because the not so nice looking guy who manages to pleasure women very well, I don't know if people want to watch that. The market is delivering us violent really misogynistic porn. That's where the weight of the market is. So I would love an outcome yeah. like you're describing. And my, real, my reaction to it is, yeah, if that were true, great. It ain't happening. And it hasn't happened. And part of this is obviously, you know, I'm conditioned by having three daughters. Yeah. I, this is terrifying. Yeah. 
the, yeah. the kind of stuff that imagine. is terrifying. And I think they're watching it. I mean, the, the data in the article is pretty compelling. Oh, it sounds like everybody's oh, yeah. watching yeah. it. I yeah. mean, you can't, you, it sounds like you can't avoid it. And you can't avoid it because your yeah. friend shows you uh, a video, absolutely. even if your kid absolutely. is a good kid, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm coming to the point of view that it would be great if we lived in the world you suggested, where there's more content and some of it's nice and some of it's lovely and everybody has to watch some so that we're all sexually liberated. We're pretty damn sexually liberated yeah. and that content do not exist. So in that sense, I feel more and more that, God, maybe we should. Really so how is this different from, from other business problems where sometimes we get private provision of what we love? What we love? The, exactly the, the right kinds of services, the right kinds of products, and right. the business sector just delivers. And then we see, oh, okay, and there are these other issues that the private sector, for one reason or another, doesn't do. And there we have government finance provision. So if there was a market for subsidies <laughs> for the production sure. of more of, of, of more liberal and more tender <laughs> I love it. Okay. Very Hear good. me out. Yeah. What if if every school program in the United yeah. States would have mandatory sex education that is built around the idea of what is good for okay. both partners Let in a just... sexual relationship, there will be content. There will be lots of people yeah. who will produce okay. and lots of schools that will buy, and that will give us the balance that we need. Okay. But what we do is we, we oppress actively through policies a, a normal, regular conversation. And we ban the conversation to cell phones where we watch things in private. And then we're totally surprised that the nature of content that we get is skewed. Fair enough. But just to be clear, I would love better sex ed in schools, but that might work in other countries. But in this country, there's like huge reactions against that. Yeah. We're teaching like, you know, abstinence. Right. I no, mean, that's I, the reality. Here's, here's the part that is really resonant for me. Uh, you know, I mean, I started out by saying I could imagine uh, advocating for either extreme. It, the, the, where we are today, where it's this still uh, stigmatized consumption behavior and so skewed content production that everybody has access to yeah. is maybe the worst of all possible worlds. Let me try it by analogy. What do we do with smoking? What do we do with tobacco? Right? We put boundaries around it. We put boundaries around it, and it seems to be somewhat effective. And if anything, it's actually been extremely effective. Um, for alcohol and tobacco, we do things. We have age limits on them, and we restrict content, and we So let me ask about alcohol. What is it about the lessons of the prohibition that, Fair that, that don't apply to the ban? That's a great court? point. Uh, so let's just unpack that. I take that by what you mean that... If anything, the lesson of prohibition was that alcohol was distributed widely, and in fact, in, there were underground markets. Even horrible, horrible. Fair enough. Fair enough. And but just to be clear, you know, we ban child pornography. We do ban a lot of things. We were just talking about banning assault rifles, and we do that because yeah. we worried about their social effects, and we do it all the time. Now, alcohol was silly because the social effects were not nearly as bad as people advertise them to be. But we do it. We ban things. We should ban assault rifles. And we, we were talking about prohibition in other settings. We can talk about it here. If we deem pornography to be so bad, which is the kind of point of view I'm coming to, yeah. to be so corrosive that we want to ban it. Yeah. It, I think that, to me, the difference is in smoking, it was problematic because it led to lung cancer. And the cause was smoking, and the only way to interrupt that causal chain was to reduce the incident of smoking. Uh, I am not convinced at all that the most effective means to get people to treat one another better and to get 
connecting it back to the Me Too moment, the way, the way you did it at the beginning, I think there's a million other things we can do before we ban porn that I think are much more, that are much more important. I am, maybe it's a little similar to you, I'm unconvinced that, say, all the things that are wrong with gender relations in the workplace. I'm not. That no one's not saying that. No one is saying that, Felix. No one's saying that all porn. the things that are wrong in the workplace are reflective As of porn. That's an extreme argument. What I'm saying is when men consume that content and they see women subjugated in that way, then they go into the workplace. You ask them to behave differently than they absorb in that content. You're dreaming if it doesn't have an effect. No, no, no. <clears throat> but even in the evidence that is presented in the New York Times piece, uh, I think the argument that people are making is that particular sexual practices and among a group of people who don't have much experience yeah. with sex, they tend to imitate what they see in film. And that sounds completely plausible to me because no one's talking to me about sex in the first place and I have no <laughs> idea what this thing is. And yeah. then, you know, I do what I see other people. Yeah. That's to But that to me is a million miles away right. from because I watch people have anal sex on my cell phone, then I go to my workplace and I treat women differently? No. Okay, but just to that, be, I There's wanna, no plausibility in that well, argument. Well, let me just, I want to say two things. One, I totally concede the point, which is there is no scientific evidence that watching the pornography leads to this workplace. That has not been proven. I don't think it's a stretch to the imagination at all. Yeah, I agree with it you. It is not a stretch to the imagination at all. But here, going back to that article, there were as many uh, teenagers, essentially, who were uncomfortable with what they were seeing and questioning it as well. So it's, it's So the distribution of teenagers and how they yeah. kind of absorb the content it was was in my mind anyway. You know, there was there was quite a bit of variance Absolutely. there, which you know sort of goes back to. Something I said earlier, which is I'm not convinced that this generation is worse off as a result of the consumption of all of this content. And in, in, in fact, you could argue that they're better, marginally better. Yeah, I don't know. That, I, that's a good point. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. Yeah. Is it possible that as we age, we're just getting more totally. conservative? I'm totally. <laughs> no, I mean. Yeah, we're all. That's true. You know, and this is your point about the new generation that maybe we're we're not giving them enough faith, enough, enough credit. Fair enough. You know. Okay. Well, so this, um, I, in the spirit of this segment, if you are all satisfied, I think we can come to an end. Is it okay. okay. Good. Very good. <laughs> we got through that one. So it's time for my um, favorite part of the show when we make some recommendations for something cool, something interesting that you saw in the last week that you want to share with us. And then we have a special version of it with the Oscars. I just finished reading probably the best book I ever read in my life. Oh, my God. Uh, which probably also has to do with... The I have best book in your I, life. I, now I, I'm, I'm already I, feeling I, bad about my recommendation. No. Yeah, I mean, and I, I had like, a book and I'm no longer doing a book. I'm changing my... I don't know. This is like a very high stakes I should, now. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I should also say uh, I have forgotten many books that I have read. And so maybe, you know, there was an even better one that I don't recall now. But this was really, this is really quite fabulous. The book is, uh, is called Don't Say We Have Nothing. And it's, in a way, it's the story of China in the last 40, 50 years. Uh, and it's told through the history of a family 
of musicians uh, grow up in Shanghai and they experience everything around the Cultural Revolution. Is this fiction or non-fiction? Is it's it? fiction. Okay. Uh, but you will recognize down to quotes of famous politicians, down to lots of historical events that that feel very real and. It has lots and lots of footnotes <laughs> where yep. actually it refers to actual historical events, but the story itself is a is a fictional story, and it's told through the eyes of a girl who has to leave China after the Tiananmen Square massacre, and she then you know goes back. Um, the author is a, a Canadian a Canadian writer, uh, Madeline Tian. And she goes back to uh, where does this come from? How did the how did the parents of the child grow up, and how did she end up participating in the in the Tiananmen Square uh, wow. protests? And part of what I really loved is it it brings home these just unspeakably horrible events in China of that we that we now tend to forget a little bit because sure. China is prosperous and so and so. Uh, so successful, but it also gets at how is it that perfectly reasonable, nice people sometimes do really horrible things to one another, mm. and and the part some of the most touching uh, parts of the book have to do with this human dynamic. How is it possible that that a person like Mao got? millions and millions of people do buy into a vision that is you know not pleasant to say the least and murderous for for many mm. for many for very many people so the second thing that i really like about the book is the economy of language uh, she has this amazing ability to to describe big feelings and and big events in these tiny tiny sentences mm. that just package so much of what people feel or know in almost no language at all. So, highly recommended. Wow. It's Madeline Tian. Don't, don't say we have nothing. Don't say we have nothing. Young me, what's yours? So, I was going to do a book, but it's a smaller book, and, and I don't, I'm not able to be quite so effusive about it. So, I'm on the fly doing a dramatic left turn and instead going to ask you guys if you've seen Black Panther yet. I have not. I have not, no. I'd love to. Did you see it already? Yes. So You're here's... so hip. You're like cutting edge. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You like my Naruto shirt, by the way? I didn't know what that's <laughs> worth. Very good, yeah. <laughs> With the runes? Okay. Right. Anyway, um, so here's the con- the context for me is there are kind of two kinds of movies right now. There are movies that are way too simplistic and there's just kind of text. And then there are, and they're not that interesting because we're just jaded consumers of content now. But then there's the other kind that has text and subtext and subtext and subtext. And this is the latter. But as opposed to it feeling heavy and pedantic, it's also really cool and fun and entertaining. Mm. And it's that combination Hmm. of things. There's not a moment that's not cool. There's something cool on the screen all the time. And it could be the particular vision how they've executed this vision of Wakanda that is just so cool. Hmm. It could be the fashion. Right. You know, it could be um, it, the characters themselves are immensely cool. The protagonist and the antagonist are both cool in very different ways. Every Everything about it is cool. It's highly entertaining. And yet there's a lot going on in right. terms of messaging as well. And I think it's rare to encounter um, a piece of popular culture – 
that can pull all those things off. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I would recommend. Great. The music is really, again, very cool. Fantastic. That is cool. All right. So I'm just going to have to go very lowbrow uh, in response to your very, very good suggestions. <laughs> and so I'm going to recommend an app. So, um, so I'm going to give my a shout out to my brother-in-law who, uh, who's like a very tech guy and he's cutting edge. Um, so I hate weather apps. (laughs) I think the current weather apps are terrible and I like, I want to know the weather and I want to know when I'm traveling. And so if you think about the Apple weather app, terrible. If you think about the weather channel app, it's terrible. So, um, this is so good that I actually paid for it. By the way, I like your first app that you ever bought. (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much my first app that I ever bought. And it is called Dark Sky. Okay. And it is spectacular. And the primary reasons it's spectacular is um, I'm actually not connected to the internet here, so I can't show you this. But the the interface is spectacular. The presentation of information is really, really crisp. The front screen gives you the current temperature. Then you scroll down, and there's a bar that goes through time. So you see how it changes. You swipe right. You get the next five, seven days. You swipe left, you get radar. It's mm-hmm. awesome. And it's only two ninety nine and it is gonna make it is gonna make no. your life complete. Um, so that is it my is what's been missing in my life? Pretty much. And yeah. only for two ninety nine. Think, think about that. Think about Look, that. You, think about, think about how much I like good weather apps. Beautiful. The graphic interface yeah. is stunning. Okay. So it's called Dark Sky, two ninety nine available uh, in your app store. Oh, it's a, that's a good that's a good pick. Actually, thank you. Wait, before leave. So next week is the Oscars. I need to know what film you guys are rooting for, and what film or films you're rooting against. Which is a different question than what your predictions are. I want to know what you're emotionally rooting for. If I if I just think about the film, like no context, no. This is 2018. I think I would love to see three billboards win. I think it was just, it captured something about that way of life and these kinds of interactions that I just absolutely loved. But because this is 2018, I think uh, we need something more romantic and more uplifting. And I hope that, I will say it, I will say it. it. The Shape of Water, I think. It's the you movie had that ought to win. And you just lost me. But go <laughs> oh, my God. I gave him a hard time about this movie. I know. He she talked- said sex with a fish was her thing. If the sort of the animating tension in the movie revolves around sex between a woman and a fish, I'm sorry. I just, I can't. I can't support it. I can't watch it. It's, I think they, I've heard they even show them having sex. Yeah, so A, I think fish is a mischaracterization. <laughs> you're, doing a lot of, you're, you're doing a lot of violence to the film, I think. Uh, yes. I mean. No, so it's it's really, if you're a romantic soul, that's your movie. Wow. Are you rooting against anything? <laughs> I can't say that I found anything so annoying that maybe I would be pretty unhappy if Dunkirk wins. Uh, it seems totally like that. Totally. <sighs> God, how many times did yeah. we have to see that same movie? I agree. So, but I don't know, actively rooting against it. So I'll just jump in because, yeah. so I, you had me until you went on your little shape of water thing. Um, so, <laughs> so, the first, so first off, I think Three Billboards is just fantastic. And it's just, it's about, I think, the cycle of violence in our lives. And it's just so interesting and so well done. Francis McDormand is 
Absolutely yeah, amazing. Wonderful. The way you went wrong is when you said, because it's 2018, we should have the shape of water. Because it's 2018, we should have get out. That's uh, my vote too. Why get out and not a Amazing accomplishment. First time director. It captures this the centrality of race in America. It captures it in a totally entertaining way, a la your Black Panther comments. It's genre bending. Genre bending, totally creative, blows your mind. Lady Bird is also, I think, very, very good. Um, and then I just want to add on Dunkirk. I don't even know why it's nominated. It's like <laughs> violence, and it's like yeah. the same thing we've seen again and again, and Kenneth Branagh isn't even very good in it. Anyway, so I, I am I am rooting for three billboards or... Get out, and then no one does. But you know that I will win, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm well. I'm rooting for Get Out as well for the same reasons. I'm rooting against the Post. I'm sorry. I, don't, I haven't oh, even yeah, seen I, it. Oh, I, don't I need kind to of agree. See it. Good point. Good yeah. point. You know, yeah. it's say, yeah. such a tired. I agree. Definition Oof. of quality, yeah. and it's one of those movies oh. you don't have to see to feel like you've seen. It's just, it's oh, that's uh, good. Yeah. That's a good call. So yeah. true. Yeah. So, and by the way, on that late night with Seth Meyers, uh, Seth Meyers, the comedian, he has a great parody of like every newspaper movie you've ever seen. <laughs> and it's always the same. Like there's it this is. like chain smoking editor who's like, <laughs> and then at one moment he's like, run it. Yeah. <laughs> and the crowd goes, it's, it's great. You should watch it. Yeah. yeah. They did a really good job producing a trailer that makes gives you a hundred percent certainty that you don't want to see. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is good. Um, okay, that does it for the week. I think this is after hours. This is after hours. Yes. All right. Ciao. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, it feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.